The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the 13th episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Today is Friday, November 18th, and in this podcast, we will hear the best editorials from around the world on the meeting of the G20 heads of state, climate change at the heart of COP27, and the course of the war in Ukraine. Let's start right away with the first series of editorials. Today we start by talking about the G20, held this week in Bali, Indonesia. The G20 is an annual meeting of the heads of state of the 19 countries in the world that contribute the most to the global economy, plus representatives of the European Union. The EU countries to attend the summit are France, Italy, Germany, with Spain and the Netherlands as guests invited to this edition. Also present was the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. The big absentee this year, however, was Russian president Vladimir Putin. In his place representing the Asian country, there was Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. The conference also marked the first face-to-face meeting between the Chinese President Xi Jinping and the American President Joe Biden. Let's start in Southern Europe with the first editorial, the Spanish newspaper El País. For the Spanish editorial board, we need to involve China in the peacemaking process. It is encouraging, the article reads, that China is at the center of this anxious international conversation against the war and the nuclear threat. Indeed, China would be in a privileged position as a mediator, as an ally of Russia. The Asian giant is maintaining an equidistance between the aggressor, the Kremlin, and the aggrieved Zelensky's Ukraine. The journalists also took note of the isolation of Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister and thus of Russia on the world stage. Lavrov has been a fleeting presence at the summit, shunned in meetings and family photos by the majority of representatives of democracies. It will not be easy to engage China in the peace process, however, as the dialogue between Xi Jinping and Biden was very blunt, with the latter criticizing the bleak state of human rights in China as well as its proximity to Taiwan. It is this change of climate, the columnists conclude, the most tangible outcome of the meeting, which they warn a complete disconnect, economic and financial, with China would lead to disaster, economic, social, environmental and probably political. The next editorial comes instead from the heart of Europe and French newspaper Le Monde. If, at the G20 in Bali, Biden and Xi reiterated their positions while trying to avoid any belligerent rhetoric, the French columnists say, the dividing issues between Washington and Beijing remain structural and their rivalry will continue to weigh on much of international relations. This detente is in itself a good thing. The world is already going through enough crises as it is and a cold war between the two superpowers must be avoided at all costs. Moreover, the editorial points out, to combat climate change, there is a need for cooperation between the two most polluting countries in the world. Both Biden and Xi Jinping come from favorable domestic policy outcomes, and this helps the, albeit, embryonic search for common ground. 
Greater domestic stability is also likely to translate into greater geopolitical stability. However, as specified at the outset, the issues that divide China and the US are structural. The Asian giant has remarked its policy towards Taiwan, which it considers an integral part of its territory. While the US continues to pursue the trade war with Beijing initiated by Donald Trump, multiplying barriers to trade to preserve a technological advantage. The rivalry between Washington and Beijing will thus continue to weigh on much of international relations. As for other players in the geopolitical landscape, and in particular the European states, they can only take note and conclude that they will be able to better defend their interests by acting together rather than in isolation. Let's cross the border now and go to Germany for the latest editorial on the subject. Let's hear what Stefan Cornelius, a journalist for the Süddeutsche Zeitung newspaper, thinks about the G20. Cornelius notes the mood among representatives and heads of state attending the summit when the subject of the war in Ukraine is raised. Enough. This war harms everyone and benefits no one. Thoughts that, according to the columnist, will gain more traction after a missile fell in Poland this week. One can almost speak of a worldwide consensus. Cornelius argues, pointing out that, when added together, the inhabitants of the states represented amount to more than two-thirds of the world's population. Even states that had been so far more ambiguous about the war took a clear stand against Russia, such countries as India, Southeast Asian states, but also representatives of some African states and Brazil. Despite Russian protests, whose representatives even walked out of some sessions, some relations between countries that had been soured seem to be strengthening. All this will not end a war and make lambs out of wolves, the columnists conclude. But the world has regained some predictability. The second topic of the day concerns another important international meeting, the COP27. COP27 began on the 6th of September in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, and will end today. The summit's topic is the fight against climate change. Also for the first editorial on COP27, we'll start with Southern Europe and the Italian newspaper La Repubblica. Climate change is the most important challenge of our time, is the opinion of an appeal signed by 33 news outlets addressed to the representatives gathered in Sharm el-Sheikh. Among the letter's signatories are outlets from all over the world, such as La Repubblica itself, Britain's The Guardian, Israel's Haaretz, Spain's El Diario, America's Rolling Stone and Portugal's Publico. Climate change is a global problem, requiring the cooperation of all countries, the appeal states. Unfortunately, the energy crisis linked to the war in Ukraine is creating a kind of gold rush around the world for new fossil fuel extraction projects. These are being presented as temporary, necessary for a future transition to renewable energy. But time is running out, and thus risk irreversibly compromising the planet. If renewables were already the norm, there would be no climate emergency. Tackling this challenge and helping even the poorest countries most affected by the effects of global warming requires huge investments. 
we need to start thinking again about radical allocations of funds as we did during the pandemic and abandon the arguments of energy companies that instead lobby for continued use of fossil fuels. There is no time for apathy or carelessness. Urgent action is needed. The climate change conference must focus on the strength of arguments. The letter concludes not on the arguments of those with strength. The next article comes from across the ocean and from America's The New York Times. Paying for climate damage is not charity, is the unequivocal headline of the editorial by Ani Beskupta, president and CEO of the NGO World Resources Institute. It is time for the most developed countries to commit to a range of funding, dubbed loss and damage, for the countries most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. So far, commitments in this have only been partially met. What is critical in the current climate conference, she explains, is for rich countries to agree to a process with clear deadlines to pay for damages. Helping developing countries is not only charity, as we said, but also is in the interest of first world countries. Extreme climate-related events damage factories and ports around the world, the ones that wealthy nations rely on for their phones, car parts, fast fashion and even food. This, combined with rising conflicts and migration crises, will destabilize even the most robust economies. The US and the EU have been stalling on the allocation of these funds as it could open the door to a flood of lawsuits related to their responsibility in global warming. But already in the 2015 Paris Agreement, it made clear that such financial aid does not involve or provide a basis for any liability or compensation. Further obstructionism by rich nations risks derailing the entire current negotiations. The world's ability to tackle climate change hinges on trust between the developed and developing countries. Das Gupta explains in closing, without concrete progress to address these severe losses and damage, that trust risks being broken. Going back to Europe, Britain's The Guardian for the latest editorial on COP27, for Bill Maguire, Professor Emeritus of Geophysical and Climate Hazards at University College London, if we really want to fight climate change, we have to stop thinking that we will be able to keep Earth's warming below 1.5 degrees per year. The 1.5 degree limit was set in 2015, during COP21. But to say that progress made since has proceeded at a snail's pace would be an insult to mollusks, the professor argues. If states really wanted to meet the target identified in 2015, emissions would need to fall 45% in the next seven and a bit years, when they are actually on track to rise by 10% compared with 2010 levels. Seven years ago, the 1.5 degrees Celsius target seemed a sensible one. Now it is at best irrelevant and at worst dangerous. It has to go. Fossil fuel corporations and world leaders actually have used the 1.5 degree target to justify inaction on emissions. According to Maguire, in hindsight, it is clear that having a specific target was counterproductive and we would do better to fight to stop every fraction of a degree of temperature increase. The rise of the Earth's temperature by more than a degree and a half will make a climate collapse inevitable. At that point, governments and corporations will have no way to justify themselves. All is not lost, however. If temperature rising beyond that threshold is inevitable, we can still fight for every single 0.1 degree. 
In that sense, every ton less carbon dioxide in the atmosphere represents a victory, even if temporarily, the professor hopes in closing, hitting this fateful milestone will at last galvanize the action on emissions that is needed to stop a perilous future from becoming a cataclysmic one. We'll end this press review by discussing the drama of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. There are two major recent developments in the war. At the end of last week, the Ukrainian army liberated and regained control of the southern city of Kherson along the Dnipro River. Kherson was one of the towns that had fallen into Russian hands early in the conflict and is located within the territories that the Kremlin had unilaterally decided to annex following a referendum held at gunpoint by the army. The annexation had not been recognized by the international community. The second, more disturbing development is the death of two Polish civilians after a missile hit Polish territory. It is still uncertain where the missile came from, whether it was Russian or Ukrainian. As soon as news broke out, an emergency meeting of G7 and NATO countries was held in Bali, Indonesia, where, as we have already heard, the G20 is being held. Let's start with the latter update and the opinion of Gianluca Di Feo, a journalist for the Italian newspaper La Repubblica. For the journalist, the missiles that hit Poland makes more concrete a risk that many fear, the escalation of the conflict and that the war will reach past Ukraine's borders. Indeed, the attack, voluntary or not, formally justifies the mobilization of the Atlantic Alliance under Article 5. Article 5 is the founding article of the Atlantic Alliance, the one that mandates collective defense in the event of an external attack. Only once in its history has it been activated. After the attack on the Twin Towers on September 11th, never before in the course of the war in Ukraine have we been so close to the concrete prospect of a widening of the conflict. There is still no certainty about where the attack came from, and the Kremlin and Kiev are blaming each other. In what happened, however, there is a certain amount of Russian responsibility, states Defeo. The Russian military, with its decision to bomb Ukrainian towns and power plants close to the Polish border, allegedly made a conscious decision to take the risk that some of its missiles might end up in Polish territory. These decisions testify to the critical situation in Moscow, in the face of territorial conquests by the Ukrainian army. In the coming days more than ever, the tensions and divisions that have accumulated within NATO since the beginning of the invasion will come to light. The situation is white-hot, the columnist concludes, and any risky move can trigger a chain reaction. Never more important than now is it to ascertain the facts to assess the response. Let's stay in Southern Europe, but now we'll head west onto the Spanish newspaper El País. According to the Spanish journalist, the recapture of Kherson has allowed Zelensky to talk about peace again and to hint that the war may be approaching a favorable outcome. The United States and the European Union, too, are realizing that the time for negotiations is approaching. However, it is up to the Ukrainian government to decide when to initiate negotiations. It is now in the midst of a counteroffensive. No one can honestly ask it to stop defending its invaded home with all its might. For its part, perhaps it would suit the Kremlin to kick off the negotiation as long as it is in an advantageous position with one-fifth of Ukrainian territory in its hands. 
But Putin's pride and imperialist rhetoric prevent him from seizing this opportunity. As for the Western countries, on the other hand, it is clear when they will be willing to sit at the negotiating table. If it is not up to Washington or Brussels to set the terms and conditions, but to the legitimate government of sovereign Ukraine with the support of its parliament. On that occasion, it will be necessary for them to be able to count on the same solidarity and assistance in peacebuilding that their European and American allies have so far provided. Our final commentary takes us back to France to the newspaper Le Figaro. What peace for Ukraine? Journalist Patrick St. Paul asks at the beginning of the editorial, Western mediators would be eager to start negotiations, not only to end the massacre, but also to slow the spiraling energy, economic and inflationary crises that the war has set into motion. There is one major hurdle, however, finding out where a plausible compromise may start. Spurred by the momentum of Kiev's military successes and with the Russian military on the defensive, Zelensky called for an end to the Russian occupation of Ukraine. A condition, however, that Moscow found unacceptable. For now, therefore, things on the negotiating front seem to be moving slowly. It will take more Kherson's to bend Moscow, is the columnist's opinion. The time for war has not yet given way to the time for negotiations. Although, as French President Macron has already said, Russia may not be humiliated. On the other hand, one must avoid any compromise that would allow Putin to present his war as a victory. This would leave his power of disruption intact and risk opening the door to new wars in Moldova or elsewhere in the former Soviet geographical space. And that's it for this episode. Thank you for following us and we look forward to seeing you next Friday again with the best editorials from Europe and the rest of the world. This week's editorial work was edited by Daniel Rutza and at the microphone, it's Gail Rago. See you next week.